Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. And I'm Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. And joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And Brittany Rigby. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Nine's Adrian Swift about the joys of working with Hamish Blake. You're right. What Hamish did was completely subvert the paradigm of reality TV shows. How hard it can be to spot a hit. There's a whole lot of belief, big crossing of fingers, praying to God, um, you know, hoping the wind's blowing in the right direction. And how COVID has radically changed viewing habits. Well, I think we're in a, a world at the moment where, of the big broadcasters, what people don't want are, 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 are stories about people in isolation, because I think the news gives us plenty of that. But first, the week's topics. How Sydney radio audiences have turned to easy listening. A massive comeback for MasterChef. And the government reveals a media industry rescue package. So, Thursday saw the last radio ratings for a while. Old habits are going out of the window, Viv. Usually, if not like clockwork, then I don't know what something that comes out every six or seven weeks is, but uh, that's what we got used to. It's all going to change because of the virus, though. Yes. So the way that radio ratings are conducted in Australia still revolves around a lot of in-person interviews and door knocking and keeping physical diaries, the practicalities and safeties of which just aren't viable in a COVID-19 lockdown situation where we're not meant to be sort of bursting our home bubbles and unnecessarily seeing fresh people. So Survey 2, which was released on Thursday, which is today as we record this, uh, will be the last for quite a while, which I think has quite far-reaching implications for the networks who market themselves on the results because these are the results for a while now. So I spoke to some of the radio bosses and I said, oh, how do you feel that this is your last survey for a while? And the ones who'd done well were like, well, it's bloody great. I get to be number (laughs) one. Reigning (laughs) champions. I get to be number one for six months and and market off that. Um, Some other people, you know, Nova's Paul Jackson said that they're not actually going to be conducting any marketing activity in coming months. They believe that they bettered down their proposition early this year and late last year. So I think the figures, they're around for the foreseeable future. Commercial Radio Australia thinks they can bring it back for Survey 6, but I don't think anyone has certainty about what the world will look like in Q3 and 4 of this year. And speaking of Nova's Paul Jackson, he'd have been pretty happy with his uh, radio station Smooth FM and how they did in Sydney. So Smooth in Sydney launched a marketing campaign on Valentine's Day. So before we were in lockdown here and practising social distancing and all those buzzwords, they had a new campaign fronted by Robbie Williams, the results of which can be sort of reflected in this survey. And Smooth FM is is now on top of the FM uh, section of radio in Sydney, so they command the biggest market share. So this maybe is in the Monday to Sunday share. Yes, Monday to Sunday. So they now have a nine uh, percent share, which is the top of the FMs. Uh, you know, the its competitors, WSFM, for example, has an eight point nine percent share. Kiss has eight point five percent. And then, of course, you've got those way out in front, like ABC Sydney on 9.6 and good old 2GB on 14.8. Well, let's do our Metro whip. Brittany, Adelaide. I feel like this survey for Adelaide was very much the 5AA show. So they saw really big growth in both Breakfast and Drive, which kind of led to a a big overall growth. So, yeah, up 3.4 percentage points in Breakfast, 2.4 2.4 in drive and 3.2 overall. It's worth pointing out, I think, that Ben and Liam remained fairly steady for their second survey at Nova in, in Adelaide after returning to their hometown from Perth and Triple J. So they dropped 0.2 points in the breakfast slot. 
which I guess as an early, uh, you know, as an early indicator is, is does, doesn't matter too much in the scheme of things. Yeah, exactly. I think that given kind of the results from other stations, they remained, you know, fairly steady. They're still kind of behind ABC and 5AA um, and Mix kind of sat between them. But yeah, a 9.7% share for Ben and Liam. Okie dokie. Um, Hannah, maybe should we talk to Metro Melbourne next? Yeah, um, it was pretty quiet for Melbourne, actually. Um, there wasn't any big changes. Gold FM and its breakfast star, Christian O'Connell, held on to their top spots. That's in FM. Of course, 3AW, the overall winner in Melbourne, as it is almost every survey. Um, I think if you look kind of across the board, there were a couple of little, you know, little bumps, little drops, but compared to survey one there wasn't really anything any one shining light that you would point to necessarily and hannah we kept you busy you wrote about perth as well your highlights from perth we do my favorite market of all time um perth actually there were some very big shake-ups in perth um massive changes across the board i don't really know what's going on in perth at the moment but um, the reigning champ Nova dropped two percentage points, which lost them the lead as Mix 94.5 gained two percentage points and snatched the lead. So it was quite interesting, actually, to the two 96FM and Nova are kind of the two lead stations in that market usually. And they both just saw quite big drops for one survey and pushed them completely out the running, leaving Mix free to shoot on through. And our podcast producer, Zoe, did Brisbane. Zoe? Yeah, so it was quite a big um, survey in Brisbane. Triple M, which had the top spot overall in the market, actually lost it after dropping 1.4 points. And in its breakfast slot, which is hosted by Greg Martin, Nick Cody and Margot Parker, also dropped 1.9 ratings points. Um, one bright spark for Triple M, though, was Mick Malloy and Jane Kennedy was up 1.3 points. That's in drive. In survey. Yes, in drive. Cool. Now, um, the other thing, which I remember being very cynical when I saw that uh, what had been Macquarie Sports Radio and before that to UE in Sydney had dropped out of the ratings, this, this now owned by Nine Radio, um, so I suppose we're beginning to see what the old Macquarie media um, is 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 up to now. So uh, so tell us about good old 2UE. Yes, so I think we can all agree that Macquarie Sports Radio was an experiment that didn't pay off. So Nine parked that for a while, which, look, maybe they had a bit of forethought because Lord knows what they'd be reporting on at the moment when there's no sport. So... Parking Macquarie Sports Radio could have been a genius move, but the alternative of bringing back a classic stations such as 2UE in Sydney, again, hasn't yet paid off. This is the only survey that we've seen them in, but it's the only survey for a while. And they had a 0.7% share in Monday to Sunday. Uh, their best performing segment was evenings Monday to Friday at 7pm when they had a 1% share they also have a 1% share on weekends, but, you know, in breakfast, they're as low as 0.4%. In afternoons, they're at 06 So there's there's a lot of work to do, but uh, at least it's not an asterisk, Tim. Next. Oh, boy, did we get our MasterChef predictions wrong. So this time last week on the Mumbrella cast, we made some fun predictions on how the ratings would look for MasterChef's return. Let's take a listen to what we said. But yes, I'm going to uh, go around the team and ask everyone for their guesses. Oh, Hannah, your guess. Um, I'm going to go straight in with 700,000. Vivian. Okay, everyone at home can't see this, but I made a face because, and I can prove this on the video to the team, that I wrote down 699. So I'm not <laughs> undercutting Hannah. That was genuinely my guess and I'm not changing it. There we go. That's Viv's guess. Uh, Brittany, yours. I feel like I'm very optimistic compared to these two. I feel like 
the context that Viv gave, plus the fact that everyone's at home watching TV and everyone's into cooking again, look, I'm going to be the Easter positive fairy and say... (laughs) Not the Easter bunny. The Easter bunny is far too predictable. Um, I'm going to say 9.50. Look, I, I have faith. I, I don't know if I'll watch, but I think other people will. <laughs> I I wonder if we would have been able to get anyone at ten to guess nine fifty, but um wow. but there you go. And Zoe, your guess please. Well, I was also gonna give them sort of a isolation boredom kind of viewership boost but i was thinking more like 735 not 9.50 so i think britney's really gone out strong there we haven't heard tim's guess yet but at the moment if it's above 735 i well not above but i i have a good chance of winning at the moment you've all gone pretty close you've grouped together yeah and i'm gonna play slightly tactically now 790 sneaking there in the (laughs) middle hmm Hindsight's great, isn't it? <laughs> Hannah, how did we do? Oh, we didn't do very well. Um, <laughs> just to cover that one off, Brittany, uh, Brittany did better than most of us, um, but everyone else did appallingly across the board. We uh, should have believed. Mas- we should have believed in the power of MasterChef. I do I recall that I felt quite attacked for my what was considered overly optimistic guess. And it turns out even my 950,000 was still quite a way off the mark. So look, Easter optimism. But Brittany, how good are you feeling now in that you said that your favourite kind of justice is justice served on your behalf by other people? And I had someone in the industry slide into my Instagram DMs uh, during the week, screenshotting my rating story about MasterChef and saying, oh, and you mocked your colleague for shame, for shame. And let's also share what those ratings were as well. Yes, um, it was 1.268 million Metro viewers was the launch and just over 1.5 million nationally. Yeah, so I thought that I was quite gracious. And so, you know, I kind of (laughs) sat and just waited for the apology to come and it didn't come. And then mm-hmm. you told me that you'd received an email and I thought, well, that that kind of, you know, does my job for me. I don't have to mm-hmm. act outraged. I've got lovely readers and listeners at home who will happily uh, argue on my behalf. So, yes, justice served on you all. <laughs> to, to be fair, uh, Brittany, you still weren't right. I mean, nobody predicted 1.268 million Metro viewers, which climbed to 1.562 with the addition of regional viewers. So, I mean, and that also meant that 10 won that evening. You know, they they haven't had an overall audience share win for a long, long time, but they won Easter Monday because of those just absolutely massive figures that we certainly didn't see coming. I think we also discussed and perhaps debated the merits of the programming decision to air it when they were. And I think that, you know, huge credit to Bev and the team. People are sitting at home, they're wanting to cook, and apparently MasterChef is kind of the new hot nostalgic thing that taps into that. So, yeah, I mean, as you said, huge numbers. Well, more widely with television, it was um, officially a non-ratings week, but that doesn't really count when viewers are stuck in front of their televisions whether they like it or not um Viv you wrote the kind of the weekly roundup tv rating story as you were working across the weekend um I I guess it was nine's week really wasn't it look at the moment it sort of feels like nine's year in that every weekly rating story at the moment has been largely about nine taking the crown so the week that we've just had when I was writing about it over the weekend, the ratings week runs Sunday to Saturday. So nine still had the benefit of the conclusion of Married at First Sight, which helped them get a massive 31.5% share on that evening. So nine, you know, easily won that week. And also they're, they're just not sort of facing really stiff competition from seven at the moment. Uh, the likes of Pooch Perfect is really quite low at the moment. Uh, House Rules High Stakes is 
sort of coasting along in the middle, not pulling the massive numbers of maths or MasterChef. So I won't say it's an easy win for nine, but they're just not facing huge competition uh, at the moment. But I think MasterChef uh, could certainly start to change that dynamic and give nine a bit of a run for its money. Well, I am scared to suggest this, but given mm. that Lego Masters comes to air at the weekend, do we want to all give a prediction for how uh, how Lego Masters on nine presented by Hamish Blake is going to go? Well, I actually did an interview with Hamish Blake on set uh, last year uh, when they were filming episode nine of this season of Lego Masters, I believe. And I actually spoke to him about the ratings guessing game and he was quite scathing of me that, you know, don't tell me you've learned that it's not an exact science and that you actually have no idea what you're talking about. So uh, Hamish refused to guess um, and I feel like based on last week's performance I should take Hamish's advice. Well a little bit later Hannah and I are gonna try and get Adrian Swift, Hamish's boss I suppose, to uh, to tell us what number he will dance a jig above so wait right. for that one but but I, I refuse to accept your refusal so come on come uh, off the fence give us a number. Look last year it premiered to 1.377 million. Uh, this is second outing but we're all in lockdown and going a bit bananas. Oh, goodness. I I truly hate being wrong, Tim, but I'm going to go with 1.42 million. Hannah, your guess. Um, I'm going to go 1.35. Brett, can you do it twice in a row? (laughs) What number did you say, Viv? 1.4 what? 1.42, 1.42, Brittany. Okay, well, if we're going over or under, I'll go 1.45. <laughs> oh, I don't like it. I don't like your strategies, Brittany. I think any high ground you have, have gone out <laughs> And Zoe, I'm going to bring any. you in as well. I was. I mean, I'm going to pull a Viv that she did last week, and like where she showed us all her like her notebook and said she was going to say 6.99 after Hannah said 700. Because I was genuinely going to say 1.42. So now I don't know. I'm going to like just take a stab at a clean 1.4. Wow, I'm going to come in over the top of everyone and I'm going to go at 1.5. Oh, God, this game. I think we should all have to submit our answers at the same time to stop this kind of behaviour. Keep listening till the end of the podcast to hear our sponsored segment, Audio Diaries, from audio specialist agency Eardrum. Ralph Van Dyke, founder of Eardrum, talks to some of Australia's leading CMOs about the growing role audio is playing in their brand development. Today, you'll hear his chat with Eric Thompson, Global Marketing Director and Chief Marketing Officer at Perno Ricard Winemakers. Next, how the media reacted to the government's COVID rescue package. So the government has unveiled something of a relief package for media companies hit by the coronavirus crisis. Uh, Brittany, you, you, you gauged some of the reaction from a few of the media companies. Um, what are the key elements of this and how has the industry reacted? I'll start with elements first. So I guess the three big kind of rock things are... million in tax rebates, a $50 million regional journalism program, and probably the thing that particularly TV stations were most excited about was the suspension of content quotas, which Seven's James Warburton and Nine's Hugh Marks have been particularly vocal against even before kind of things got as dire as they've gotten post-COVID. So, look, those were all very welcome measures. I think the the TV bosses particularly are usually quite diplomatic when it comes to saying we welcome these measures, you know, we're keen to work with the government, but, you know, of course we need more and that was kind of a sentiment across the board. It was actually Foxtel's Patrick Delaney and Commercial Radio Australia's Joan Warner who I think were perhaps the most outspoken about why those measures aren't enough for their businesses particularly. So Patrick Delaney said that current regulation is, and I quote, effectively a discriminatory tax on Foxtel 
and it's created a toxic competitive environment. So he doesn't think that the package uh, has enough recognition for subscription TV and for Foxtel particularly, and he says that that highlights a fundamental misunderstanding of industry dynamics within government. Of course, Foxtel's had a pretty tough month with 200 redundancies and 140 stand-downs. So I think that Patrick kind of had to come out and say that the government has failed them and that this has cost jobs, which is what he said. He said that it's threatening Australian jobs. Joan Warner kind of said that it wasn't focused enough on radio. She said that they are the most hyper-local of the mediums and she thinks that radio has been largely overlooked. So that's kind of a quick whip around of sentiment. Well, look, um, I can sort of understand why the TV companies will be reasonably happy about um, the content quotas. Do we think that's good for viewers and audiences? Look, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because ultimately we need a healthy free-to-air TV market for that to be good for viewers and audiences and that's not going to happen if you know shows that don't you know go through production because of covid means that you know companies are put under mass pressure to then kind of make up for that shortfall and be desperately scrambling for other content um, particularly australian content screen australia and acma have kind of put Uh, this options paper together which was also announced yesterday and that's going to kind of fast track a consultation process about how best to support Australian content even in the current climate Uh, and I think that all of the TV networks kind of will be approached as part of that consultation process. And look we we do need Australian content and I, I hope that the TV networks don't use this as a chance to sort of posture and, and get what they've wanted all along, which is the ability to make less local content to, to save some money and compete with the streaming giants and whatnot. But their hands are kind of tied here. You know, production in Australia has halted. 10 can't make The Bachelor. 10 has had to pause its local Australian drama, Five Bedrooms. Uh, 7 has had to pause its mini golf show. So it's happening across the board. It would be quite difficult for them to meet quotas in this environment when they just can't get people together in a room. So I'm, I'm not sure what the alternative is in that we need Australian content, but we can't sort of be breaching health guidelines in order to provide those stories. I should say as well that despite kind of content quotas being suspended for a while, there is still an ongoing requirement to meet this overall 55% level of Australian content. So Bridget Fair from Free TV actually said that that continuing to be a burden that free-to-air stations must meet is still a concern and that's still something that they're going to be fighting against. Well, it's worth while we're talking at the media crisis acknowledging that Mumbrella announced this week that we're having our own reductions in hours and among our wider parent company diversified about 30 percent of staff uh, have learned that they'll be stood down as of next week we've also seen uh similar things going on in Australian community media the one uh, the company the, the local publisher fronted by Anthony Catalano um Hannah what's gonna gone on at ACM um, your guess is as good as many people's guessed, Tim, because unfortunately, I think the mistake ACM had here was they weren't particularly clear about what they were doing before they announced it. Um, the Canberra Times, which is an ACM title, it's one of their dailies, uh, first reported based off an email that came from Catalano to staff. And essentially, it said that four of their uh, printing facilities would be closing and that a number of non-daily newspapers would be ceased and until at least the end of June, um, which also meant that all the people working on those titles, all the people working at those print facilities would all be stood down until the end of June. The only clarity in that email was that uh, the 14 daily titles, which does include the Canberra Times and also the Newcastle Herald, would be okay as well would be uh, some of the agricultural publications, including the land. But overall, ACM publishes 170 titles. So this could be a very wide-ranging concern. And I think they've 
perhaps been deliberately vague so that they can kind of slowly gauge how much they need to cut. Um, but it has drawn the ire of, you know, the union, the MEAA has said that um, what they've done is disrespectful of their workers. They've said it's potentially worth them going to uh, fair trading over. So I think that's going to be one of those ones that we're going to see fair work, sorry, not fair trading. That's going to be one of those ones that we'll see play out. I also think it was just bad timing for ACM because that announcement came the day before the government announcement. However, one of the big concerns over the government announcement was how long that funding will take to come through, how long these kind of kickbacks will take to come through to actual media companies. So it might be that that wouldn't have saved ACM anyway. Look, and Viv, I think one of the issues is that particularly the local titles, regional titles on the newspaper side of things are really hard hit. There's been a bit of an assumption that when it comes to the News Corp owned titles, at least they've got a company with deep pockets, whereas ACM, Anthony Catalano as the proprietor, maybe they, they, they actually don't have particularly big kind of depth of funds to 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 to, to wait this one out. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't be casting Anthony Catalano property and media mogul as a guy with shallow pockets. Um, certainly not the, the depth of News Corp and certainly not backed by Rupert Murdoch, but he didn't purchase Australian community media from Nine on his own. He does have uh, financial backers in, and look, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but Alex Wastelists. Uh, and a big investment firm, uh, Thornley Opportunities. So, you know, it was a multi-million dollar sale. It does have money behind it. But look, yeah, it's not a great time to have purchased a a regional media outlet, which is so reliant on local real estate, hospitality and entertainment uh, advertising revenue, which through no fault of their own simply is not there at the moment. Coming up next, we have our sponsored segment, Audio Diaries, created by audio specialists Eardrum. This week, Ralph Van Dyke talks to Eric Thompson, Global Marketing Director and Chief Marketing Officer of Pernod Ricard Winemakers. You'll hear how brands like Jameson's and Havana Club maintain local relevancy by using local artists as well as the thinking behind the recent collaboration between Absolute Juice and Lizzo. Hello, Mumbrellacast lovers, and welcome to Audio Diaries, where we put the spotlight on audio and mix our metaphors. Um, today's guest is Eric Thompson, Global Marketing Director and Chief Marketing Officer of Pernod Ricard Winemakers. I just love the sound of some of his previous roles, like Brand Manager, Rum, Director, Wines. But it's safe to say it was strictly fizzy water only when he dropped into Eardrum HQ for a chat. Just a quick heads up, the following interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. So, Eric, um, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with, from your perspective, what would be the brand that you think, within the Pernod Ricard range, uses audio most effectively? Yeah, for for me, uh, the Jameson Irish Whiskey is the Mm -hmm. one that I I think is the best example. From a Jameson perspective, what the the brand's done really successfully, both in this market and and other markets such as the U.S., is has worked to... Uh, ensure that like local relevancy uh, and music being the, the key component to that, um, you know, not just from an advertising perspective, but you know, trying to create a, an ecosystem uh, for the brand, you know, really focused on the consumption occasion. So is there a particular style of music that's usually featured if, you know, I know there's the curation and helping support Australian artists, for example. Yeah. But is there a style of music that you would use that you could describe that would be used most commonly in those ads. In the Australian contest, it's about working with local, you know, Australian independent artists, and that can be uh, everything from kind of rock artists to, to hip hop artists. The target consumer that we're going after has a breadth of music that they listen to. If you heard the tracks on their own, out of context, is there a clue that it would be associated with the Jamisons? There's, there's no like melody or no established mnemonic 
that Jamison's has as such. It's less about like a specific mnemonic that you'd hear in, in some sort of traditional FMCG advertising. Yeah. Uh, it's it's more around kind of music as a as a theme for the consumption occasion. And so f- for us, it's everything from like, you know, bands like the Delta Rigs. Which are like a you know yeah. a Australian indie rock band mm. to you know more, more DJ focused mm. music bands and DJs that our consumer in the market sees as like on cutting edge yeah. and doing something a little bit different from kind of the mainstream. It's a difficult balance because the reason people love Jameson is because of the link to the to that that historical link and that yeah. it's authentic. It comes from Ireland. It is that's the home of you know the best whiskey for sure. And I think when we're talking about heritage, we definitely look to lean into the kind of uh, an Irish voiceover. John Jemison first opened our Bow Street Distillery in 1780, and during a recent renovation, we found something he left behind: a long lost barrel of whiskey, distilled by Jemison himself. Interestingly, though, like, and, and that's for more like kind of consumption pool uh, advertising. When we're really talking to strategic target, we tend to be more locally focused. Whether it's your turn or not, there's something classic about meeting your mates for a round at the local. They say some miners started the shouting in the 1850s. If you ask me, I think they struck gold because no great story ever started with I was having a Jamison by myself. So when it's my round, my go-to is Jamison Dry and Line for something we can all get around. From my perspective, I hear that and go, oh, that's just a missed opportunity yeah. if you don't have an Irish voice in the Australian market because that gives us a point of difference. You could be talking about going to the local venue and in, in, in the rocks or wherever it is, but to me, I want to be reminded of that heritage because that makes you more unique yeah it's an interesting choice we've made as a brand Mm. to be to ensure like local relevancy and it's evocative of you know the the type of person you're trying to target but also the heritage of jameson's for sure so anything that you know as i said the delineation is like when we're talking about heritage and history we lean into an irish voiceover but when we're looking to drive in a consumption occasion in the market Mm. here we would probably more likely uh partner with a, a local australian um, to make sure that we can really make sure that we're we're really close to the bottom of the funnel from a from right. a local local consumer. You don't want to say close to the bottom of a funnel when you're talking. About yes, whiskey. it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, on a brand, for instance, like you know, Chivas Regal, which we also own. The category is obviously much bigger from a Scotch whiskey perspective. Yeah. And that Scottish heritage is actually the lead messaging from a hierarchy of messaging. Right. So we would always use a Scottish voiceover. They tell me I'm just a whiskey, but I'm more than that. I'm a blend. Born from the finest single malts and grains, blended to be smooth with a warm amber glow. I'm a one-night stand you'll never forget. Admired by men and women all over the world. I'm not one of these things, I'm all of these things. Mellow, rich and generous. Because blended is better in life and in scotch. Shivas, blended scotch whiskey. Other brands um, that spring to mind are Havana Club. Yep. Um, tell us about the involvement of, of how audio plays a role for that brand. So, so Havana Club is the, one of the key and core components is helping to support you know, street culture yep. and kind of that urban culture and bringing being a a brand that helps amplify a lot of up-and-coming music artists. And, and again, you know, not that dissimilar from the Jameson example I gave, you know, uh, the consumption occasion is a really important piece mm. of what we look to, to to bring to life from a from an alcohol beverage perspective. Uh, and Havana Club has leaned really heavily into you know supporting specifically kind of like you know, locally relevant kind of hip hop artists and street culture uh, artists as a core component of their brand. We look to bring that content completely through the line. So, right. And and how would you set about doing that? Uh, whether that be you know. You know the curation of something on a Spotify playlist, oh, yeah. um, or something like a piece of digital content where you know music is in terms of hierarchy of messaging is kind of the lead message that we're looking to to drive home. You mentioned Beefy to Pink to me before we started recording. Tell us about that campaign. Yeah, so you know Beefeater was actually one of the first brands that we 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 activated from a like an audio only perspective. Yeah, bringing the brand to life from a Spotify perspective. Mm. Um, you know, curating you know both playlists and then. And just doing traditional 
uh, above the line advertising that was audio led uh, in this this Spotify channel. I mean, the, the the great thing about Spotify is that you're able to target a really specific uh, consumer with, yeah. with with using their data. Using their data. So mm. it it always strikes me that um, why brands aren't using the time and place specific advertising on radio more often. It's uh, it's something that that we've evolved pretty quickly to, that to ensure that we have in place. Mm. So you know, I, I have a term that the team hates: weaponization of data. Whoa. So just <laughs> making sure that uh, you know, right now we have great data points in terms of understanding you know what what consumers are looking to do at different points of the day. There's like a couple of opportunities there to reach people through their ears. Yep. Either through a playlist or through a radio station that is specific to that time. Yet a lot of the advertising is is generic. Like they need it to be able to play in breakfast and then run it in the evening. It's like, well, why not adapt it? Why not have two different pieces of creative? I know that sounds so obvious, but yet it's still not something that's done. Yeah, absolutely. An area that's certainly growing for us in in terms of the number of briefs that we've been given is in audio branding, Sonic Logo. Is that something that you're also noticing or have considered for any of the brands that you represent? Yeah, it's it's something that I think, you know, uh, as a marketeer, we we need to start looking at more. And we we know that consumers are seeing, um, you know, more brands and their repertoire of brands that they both consume both uh, passively and um, actively is, has grown exponentially over the last few years. Do you think that you'd be able to, if you imagine the, the last two years of ads yeah. that you've been across, could you hear an audio logo being integrated into those ads as they are? I think there's definitely an opportunity and I think consumers are, are much busier. So I think creating that full holistic ecosystem and not just from an image perspective, but from an audio perspective is, is really important. And would you say that's something you've done effectively for one of your brands? Have we done it effectively yet? I don't think we've necessarily identified the right way in which to necessarily do it. But I, I do think that... Um, you know, we've gotten very smart visually. You know, I think you know in those very you know short like three second clips to do things visually. There's no yeah. reason why we couldn't evolve. You know, that same thinking to do things from an audio perspective. I think that's the fine balance that we need to kind of strike from a marketing perspective. Yeah, and it can work in a subliminal way yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know McDonald's has done a great job of having that really identifiable audio mechanism. I might just finish with the. I know it's not a brand that is in this marketplace, but the recent partnership. Uh, that you've done with Lizzo for the Absolute Juice campaign felt like a, a, a perfect collaboration. You have this artist who's blowing up all around the world with a song that captures the essence and attitude of the product. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that evolved or how, how that came to life? I think it's the, the, the perfect... Uh, perfect storm of you know identifying an artist that stands for a lot of the things that we do as a brand. You know, as I said, you know that notion of equality that mm. also happens to have uh, a footprint in that music space where we you know we as a as a brand look to operate from a you know a, a consumption occasion. Um, so the identification of a, a, an artist that we think effectively uh, embodies our brand beliefs mm. that happens to have you know really relevant music that our target consumer th- uh, sees as, you know, speaking to them is is the perfect partnership for, yeah. for us as a brand. It's such an authentic association, yeah, absolutely. right? Because she it doesn't have to compromise in any way nope. what she's doing, how she is. She's just, she's proud and just like, you know, she is who she is and she's she's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exactly what we, we from an absolute brand perspective, want to make sure that we, we help curate and um, amplify um, and you know, talk about that message uh, to consumers. So mm. she's the you know the perfect the perfect person to help you know embody that ethos. Hey Eric, thank you very much for your time today. Um, it's been great hearing about how you know audio is playing a role with your brands and how it could play a role further down the line. Um, but appreciate your insights. No, thanks very much for having me. And as always, if you'd like help creating, maintaining or reviving an audio asset for your brand, get in touch with us at Eardrum. You can email us at info at eardrum.com.au or reach us through our website, eardrum.com. Thanks for listening. Next, Tim and Hannah chat to Nine's Head of Content Production and Development, Adrian Swift, about all things LEGO Masters.
Lego Masters was one of the surprise hits of last year, to me at least. Um, it's back this Sunday, Adrian. From the outside, it didn't look like a dead cert. What were you actually expecting last time round? Nothing in television is a dead cert, Tim. Uh, look, I think we knew as a show goes through the production process, it starts to get a life of its own. And I think in that process, you start to see it. And that's when you start to get a sense of what it can be. I think when we commissioned it, we were nervous as hell. Because the thing that we saw, the, the UK version, was literally, uh, if, for want of a better expression, old men in a windy shed in Surrey uh, building things you couldn't quite understand. So it was a bit of a leap. But I think by, by the time we got Hamish involved and by the time we saw what the reveals were, I think we knew. I don't think we knew we had such a big hit on our hands, but I think we absolutely knew we did have a hit. So that was one of the things for me was I, I just can't picture Lego Masters without Hamish Blake as the host. He was, and, and, and I think one of the things that really added to the charm was just the way he was slightly subversive about television techniques. Um, I, I mean, firstly, how key an ingredient was he and is he? And what do you see as the other key ingredients? Huh. Uh, oh, look, we can't see it without him either, Tim. I mean, look, you know, you're always a little bit careful to go, is the show all about one person? But you're right. What Hamish did was completely subvert the paradigm of reality TV shows, which not only did that work in Lego, because it's such a ridiculous idea, you know, this sort of big drum-crashing uh, crescendo reveals of things built with tiny plastic bricks, so it lent itself to that. But, but I guess I guess um, uh, it, it it just what it allowed us to do was have a great deal of fun with the idea, so that so that not only did you actually enjoy the builds themselves, but you kind of felt you're in on the joke as well. So I guess the other the other so to, to, to answer the second part of your question, so yes, it's a huge a huge part of it is Hamish. The other part of it is fabulous reveals. I guess the, the in the promos we try to hit the idea of it all being about imagination, and I think you know these fascinating everyday characters and the things they pull out of their heads. I think that's what really captures people. And let's talk a little bit about sponsorship because you had some kind of key integrations in that first season. I can remember the partnership um, where you built the giant Lego car. I believe it was with Honda. So how do you kind of go about integrating these sponsorships into a show that's as unique as Lego Masters without kind of compromising that um, key those key aspects of the show? Uh, look, it's 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 like anything. As long as as long as the sponsorship makes sense and you're not you're not trying to ram it in and make it feel like, you know, what possible relationship does this have to that? So, you know, our sponsors are people like Wonder White. Um, uh, we'll go with we'll go with Honda again this year. Uh, who else is in the mix? Uh, Kmart, I think. Kmart, that's right. Both Kmart and Wonder White make sense. Wonder White makes sense because you know it's it's all it's all about making sandwiches for kids. So it's, you're talking to that audience. It's basically a viewer's choice competition. Uh, so, you know, a brick man makes the, the big decisions on the ground, but what this allows the viewers to do is run a completely standalone separate competition where the viewers get to pick the ones that they really like. And that, that makes logical sense for us because it's interesting to see what they pick. It makes logical sense for them because there's a big prize attached and it talks to their, and it talks to their audience. Kmart obviously sells Lego. So you can see how those things work. And frankly, the Honda integration just worked incredibly well. People were completely fascinated by the Honda Accord that weighed about twice as much as a real Honda Accord weighed and cost about three times, four times as much to make. But we'll do that again, probably on an even bigger scale. Um, I, look, it's about it's about capturing people's imagination and allowing them, rather than just to look in on the world, to kind of play in on our world. And I think for all those three major integrated sponsors. The sponsorship makes sense and it allows us into our world in a way that, that's logical. And um, I guess that's an example of where, where things work really well. And I, I, you work in commercial television. I know you, you had a bit of time with the ABC as well, so you've seen the other side of the fence. But sometimes, presumably, the commercial team would come to you with, with an integration idea that just isn't going to work. How do you – and I'm not talking about Lego Masters in particular, but more generally – 
How do you kind of diplomatically handle that? <laughs> it's like you've been in our meetings, Tim. Um, look, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to handle. Um, I, I guess the way the, the the best the best guys on our on our integration team and the best people who make our shows go, okay, that's interesting. What about this? And if you can do that, if you can if you can capture the spirit of what you think the 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 advertiser is trying to achieve, and then feed them back something that you know will work in your environment, I, I've rarely had people go, absolutely no, we just want our idea. I think I don't think that's ever happened in a very long and inglorious career in commercial television. Provided you can go back with something, and not just back with something that you want. What you need to do is go right. Okay, they've asked for this. Why do they want that? What campaign is that part of? What's that trying to achieve? How can we at least go part way to doing that without making it look like, you know, someone stabbed the show in the heart? And how will the format of Lego Masters evolve this year? Um, look, I think it's 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 bigger than last year. That just doesn't mean more bricks. I think it just means doing stranger, weirder, more brilliant things i think we found what the other thing it did was too it fleshed out a or flushed out a a much uh, bigger group of people who wanted to take part like really good lego builders who really wanted to take part and i think the other thing that's been really interesting is series one i think hamish was really loving um uh playing and i think with this series uh it's he's just made it completely his own it's it is literally like um hamish blake's lego masters and that's that's been just a pleasure to watch and a pleasure to cut. So look, I think I think I think it's it, it. All I ever want these days on my couch is to be able to go, "Wow, look at that!" And I think there's quite a lot of that in this show. And it'll make I think it'll make you laugh about all the things that you love about reality TV. And let's talk about um, this year. We've obviously um, Tim mentioned earlier. Lego Masters back on Sunday. We've seen some really interesting launches already this year. Um, House Rules didn't do great, but MasterChef has completely blown everybody out of the water. How are you expecting audiences to respond mm-hmm. to Lego Masters? And in kind of a wider question, how do you think audiences are changing how they're viewing things this year, considering everything going on around us? Mm, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think, look, I think, I think looking at the social just getting a sense as we tend to in programming <clears throat> about pent-up demand for things, I think Lego will launch really well. I don't have a number in my head, but it will launch really well. I take my hat off will to MasterChef. Uh, Adrian, will you, will you dance a jig if you get above a certain number? Of course I will. I'm famous as well, you know, Tim, for my jigs. I, I, don't, I don't dance well, but I dance with enthusiasm, and that's important. <laughs> um, I will dance so I, I think you predicted yeah. if you... It, if you got above a certain number for, I think it was family food fight, you were going to dance a jig. So I wonder what number you would dance a jig for for Lego Masters. Oh, look, I, I, I you know, I think in commercial television these days, I think uh, the jig dancing threshold is probably anything over nine hundred. But uh, but look, you know, you're always hoping for more than that, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, and you you alluded to this earlier on. Um. The, the fact that you, you you can maybe start to tell in production, but you know, I think about some of the the hits you've been involved in. You know, the the voice wasn't a dead cert before it went to air. Ninja Warrior certainly wasn't. Um, you know, I think one of the good things I can think of more hits associated with you than I I, I, I can think of misses. But how do you actually tell those two imposters apart before you go to air? Oh God, there's. There's a whole lot of belief, crossing of fingers, praying of gods, praying to gods, um, you know, hoping the wind's blowing in the right direction. Look, I guess what you what you do, and I think um, I think most networks have people like this within them. You, you you just try and get a sense of who your audience is and what they're looking for at any given moment. I think the thing that's really changed is I think even even 10 years ago, <clears throat> what 9 did or what 7 did or what 10 did or even what the ABC or SBS did was, was a well-trodden path. 
I think what's changed, because I think audiences are changing so quickly with the multiplicity of things they've got to watch, is you're constantly recalibrating what audiences want all the time. So this COVID thing is interesting because most most correlations are tiny degrees that happen every morning at 9.01 when the, when the ratings come in. So, you know, over the, the period of weeks or months, you're recalibrating all the time, but only by degrees. What I think COVID's done is it's a massive swing of your guns to a different part of the audience. So I think it's fair to say that, that you know, I think why MasterChef has launched so incredibly well is that people want people with genuine skill doing things they really believe in in front of other people who have genuinely the ability to judge them in a way that's both creative and joyful, which I think is what Lego Masters will give the audience, which I think is what The Voice will give the audience. I think those shows that have that little nasty that little nasty twist of the knife, I think you're going to struggle. I think we're in a, a world at the moment where of the big broadcasters, what people don't want are, 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 are stories about people in isolation because I think the news gives us plenty of that. But I think that what they want to watch are those things that they genuinely know they love where, where, where good work and talent and skill is celebrated uh, and people achieve their dreams in a way that uh, the audience understands. Um, speaking of people in isolation, that that could be read as a bit of a prediction that Big Brother over on Seven might not go that well. I know you commissioned series of Big Brother for for Nine back in the day. Uh, what do you what what are you expecting to see from it? Oh, look, I think it's a massive roll of the dice. I'm not prepared to make a prediction, Tim, just because. You know, it's it's so. If it was if it was the other Big Brother, the Big Brother we know, the turn, what we call the turnaround Big Brother. In other words, what happens in the house goes to air the next night. The Big Brother that Australia knew and loved. I could maybe say, yeah, I think that could probably be interesting in this environment. Um, the fact that this is a pre-recorded Big Brother and does things that we've never ever seen before in this market I mean, with that style of format. I, I just, I just don't. I mean, I genuinely, I just don't know. But you do think people in isolation might not be to the audience's tastes right I, now. I think you've got to be careful about, particularly with the long. You know, the problem that we have with with television is the lead times are so long. I worry that if we were to start making, you know, um, various versions of our shows based around people doing it from their lounge rooms, uh, that that would get would get very old very quickly. So I think, so look, I'm not, please understand, Hannah and Tim, I'm not dissing Big Brother in any way. I guess what I'm saying is I think we've got to be very careful about making shows about living in isolation and lockdown and all those things. What I think, Big, I think, I think what MasterChef has shown us is that people love those things that are warm and celebratory uh, and in the spaces they know about. And frankly, with, with MasterChef, uh, cooking at the moment with everyone cooking from home what you know what what isn't more front of mind at the moment so talking about shows that people love and that uh, seem to be continuing going from strength to strength every year married at first sight obviously a massive hit for nine it's performed really well this year as well although it was maybe just in before the proper covid lockdowns happened how much more life do you reckon maths has got in it are you you know is there any plan should we expect in the next couple of years for a bit of a shake up in the maths space the thing you need to understand about maths is it's such a brilliant format that that we never know what's going to happen so we put people in the front of that thing and then all this stuff happens and the great skill of the show is ro- is rolling with what happens so I'll be completely honest. We don't want people to have an, have affairs. We don't want people to uh, throw red wine over each other. We don't. That's not our aim. Our aim is actually, and it's always been our aim, to try and find a better way of matching people. <laughs> Adrian, that, that, that Adrian, let me call you out on that a little bit. Surely you want compelling television, and that must involve confrontation. When it happens, we sort of go. Oh, oh God! I'm not I'm, Tim. I'm not going to be so disingenuous to sit here and go, "Oh dear, how dare they do that?" Can we cut it out? <laughs> no, no, no. Of course, I don't ever do that. And look, and I've got to say though, there's one rule that we apply to everything that we do on on maps, unless it's something, unless it's something that contravenes a law or is libelous or something like that, or directly speaks to the 
fundamental mental health and well-being of a, of a contributor, everything that happens we leave in. So we don't cut things out that, 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 that we love and we don't cut things out that we think are utter disasters. We leave in, we leave in fundamentally what happens in the room. Regardless of what some of our contributors say, if you go and look at the, if you go and look at the camera tapes, that's what happens. So I guess what I'm getting to is saying I think we are in for a bit of a reset with the show. I do think what we're thinking of is how do we how do we reset the experiment to get to get different and I think better outcomes. And by that, refer to my original quote that you laughed at so robustly, Tim. I think what we want to try and do is work harder to get better matches. And I think I think if there's a fundamental reset in the show, that's where we'll be going. And you've um, you've talked about a, a little bit about COVID already. How do you see production for the TV sector generally being affected over the next few months? Oh, look, it's really, really tough. And remember, most of our, you know, I've got lots of mates who are freelancers and I'm, you know, we're desperately trying to keep things going to keep them employed. But but, but by the same token, we've had to let lots of freelancers who aren't covered by anything, you know, they're, they're, they're covered by job seeker, not job keeper. Uh, but it's really, really tough. Look, we will get going again, and 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 we are we are all the shows that will, that will go back into production will go uh, back into production under very, very strict uh, quarantining and and and. Uh, uh, personal distancing rules, but it doesn't mitigate the fact that there have been a lot of people in the business who've gone for many, many weeks with exactly zero income, having come from, remember this, the Australian internal uh, uh, production sector has been growing significantly every single year for the last 10 years. Suddenly it stopped dead one Tuesday afternoon. That's really hard for people. And look, we'll get going again and it will happen sooner rather than later, obviously within the confines of whatever government advice we we have, but boy oh boy, um, it's been really difficult for a lot of the freelancers because of the way because of the way the business is structured because they're not on any sort of staff they don't fall under a jobkeeper paradigm and 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 that's hard. And speaking further to that, do you have any thoughts about the um, you know there's been kind of a rollout of government relief options you know some changes to the content restrictions and stuff like that do you have any thoughts about that and about um you know whether more needs to be done in that space oh look we're not at this point we're examining what they've announced um they're all sub quotas the overall australian content quota remains unchanged which i think is important um look our big rip has always been we, we, the, the, the free-to-air broadcasters, work in a very content-regulated environment. Our competitors are completely unregulated, irregulated, deregulated. But it's, that makes it it's completely uneven playing field. Um, so I guess what, where we are at the moment is we, we've looked at what they've said. It's, it really does help. Um, but, but we're kind of examining where we go with it and, and exactly how much help it gives us. Uh, but in the short term, yeah, it is helpful because we've stopped production on everything. So hitting quotas is going to be incredibly difficult. But but it certainly doesn't represent some, you know, it's not it's not it's a it's a function of the time and circumstance. Um, question on the the official ratings year. So there's still a calendar from Oztam that says Christmas doesn't count, Easter doesn't count. I know everybody always says, well, more and more we we program fifty two weeks a year now. Um, but each year the calendar comes down and things do comes out and things do slow down certainly over Easter. Do you yeah. think finally this year, with everybody being locked in at home, we can finally kill off the non-official ratings weeks? I reckon. So the problem, Tim, is this: none of us free-to-air broadcasters can afford to fill up every single week of the calendar with the most expensive content we can afford. So I guess the, 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 the ratings calendar allows us a little bit of room to breathe, I guess. Having said that, look, you're right. The reality is we are programmed 52 weeks of the year. Look at, look at 7 and 10. They're, they've run straight through Easter, or at least 7's run straight through Easter with house rules, and um, 10's kicked off MasterChef in Easter and done remarkably well. Um, uh, you know, by doing that. So, look, 
yes, Tim, you're probably right. It is yet another um, wooden stake in the heart of the old-fashioned ratings calendar. But but there are days when I bless that old tattered book because it just allows us a little bit more room to breathe the rest of the year. Also, um, you kind of touched on in there that you're not going to be rushing out to uh, commission any shows based around people in isolation. But this time period must be doing something for BVOD audiences. You must be seeing an uptick in, you know, people hungry for content when they're sitting at home with nothing more to do. Are you planning, have you kind of pivoted how you're looking at BVOD during this time or is it still just, you know, the usual plan you had for Nine Now and where its growth will be? We are we are either genius or blessed that um, BVOD's always been, we are the biggest BVOD provider in the commercial TV space by, by a significant margin. Um, it's always been a massive part of our plan we've always been really focused on BVOD. So, of course, we had that big NBCU deal, which we did. Weirdly, everything we did prior to prior to this happening has played straight into this. So, look, I'm never going to claim that, that, you know, we felt it in our waters that there would be a pandemic and therefore we should inc- we should increase the amount of content we're putting on, 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 on our BVOD service. But that's kind of what's happened. Um, we've got a whole lot of new American franchises that are genuinely good. We're seeing a massive uptick in in, um, in BVOD viewing because it's free. So, look, I think it's a, it's a combination of, of our sheer and utter brilliance and circumstance that has led to the fact that we were we were kind of standing there with open arms as 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 this massive audience came rushing towards us. So, yeah, look, it's been frankly for our BVOD service, it's been fantastic. Adrian, thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure, Tim. Nice to meet you, Hannah. You too. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Budget Direct announces the launch of its new Budget Direct Money Manager app. The new app is a smart and easy way to track all of your personal finances in one place. Budget Direct is also pleased to confirm that it's providing the new Money Manager app for free to all Budget Direct customers. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website. That's it from us for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Toodle pip.